You know, since the fall, which is a word that the Bible uses, that Christian uses to describe how creation became frustrated, how, how creation became uh, corrupted, uh, conflict has been a constant expression of human relationships. Like we just play into it. It's unavoidable. Let's just kind of know that things are not as they should be. But in Genesis, we get this picture of how God created a world which could be summed up as good. And then when he brought people into it, he said it's, it's very good. It's a picture of shalom, everything in harmony, everything working in right relationship with each other, us in right relationship with our creator, us in right relationship with each other, and then us in right relationship uh, with creation. And, and it's this beautiful picture of harmony and, sh- and what they call shalom. But by the third chapter of the Bible, we see a devastatingly different picture. We see conflict We see mistrust in in one of the most intimate of relationships, in marriage. Mistrust, suspicion, blame, insecurity, conflict at play. Born out of humanity's pursuit of autonomy, individualism, uh, self-rule, mistrust in God, the dethroning of God, the wrecking of that rhythm, that that overarching rhythm of, of where we sit in relationship to God has then fractured everything else. It's what the Bible calls sin, the fall of humanity. Every conflict known to human history can trace its origin back to this moment. Creation plunged into chaos, dysfunctionality, mistrust, insecurity, resulting in this persistent need within us to, to be re uh, sort of self-asserting, a self-sufficient, self-justifying in relationships. And anyone who challenges that It's kind of oppressing our rights, offending our dignity, not seeking our welfare. That's kind of the landscape where we've got to. From who gets the last piece of cheesecake to who gets to hoist a flag over our heads, we have conflict in our lives that threatens to tear apart and is tearing apart what God designed to live in peace, what God designed to live in harmony, to to experience joy, to have this thing called fellowship So as we read, as we did this morning, that there is conflict between two very uh, reputable, very godly, very devoted and dedicated women, Euodia and Sintichi, and I'm not sure that's how you pronounce their names, but that's how I'm pronouncing their names. Hopefully, I'll be consistent in that. We should not be saddened. Uh, Sorry, we should be saddened, actually. And we should be grieved, but we should not be shocked by this. The reality in a sin-affected world is not if, but when conflict comes to relationships in churches. Like churches are not immune. These relationships that we have are not immune from conflict, from rubbing each other the wrong way. We're just a bunch of, we, we, in this room we have a bunch of sinners that are saved by grace and, we, and we're still working out our faith and we're still traveling, but at times we're going to rub each other the wrong way. The question is how should we deal with it? Well, in today's passage, after painting a picture of what the Christian community should look like and be like and act like, Paul addresses how to recover when it's not, how to recover when there's conflict, how to manage conflict. 
Chapter 4 begins with one of Paul's favourite linking words. It's therefore. And whenever you see the therefore, you need to see what it's there for. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This serves to connect what, what is to come, what Paul is going to talk about, with all that Paul has had to say instructionally and doctrinally so far in this letter. It's, it's common in Paul's letter that he, letters that he begins with a lot of uh, instruction and doctrine and teaching and this sort of stuff, and then he moves on to more practical implications, how these teachings then take some traction in our lives. And on this occasion, it's the Philippians, well, it's Euodia and Syntyche that have provided a case study for the application in Philippi, there's a bit of a, a cold, precious system brewing, a conflict between two feuding ladies. And it has the potential to create a rift not just between them, but a rift uh, within the church where unity should be. Because of everything that has been shared, or because of everything that has been shared about the realities of who Christ is and who you are in him and who they are in him, therefore... You should stand firm in the Lord, is what Paul eventually gets to. That's his command, that's his imperative. But once again, that command, that imperative, is uh, delivered amongst pastoral care and gospel realities. As Paul says, my beloved, which actually appears at the end of the opening verse. But it's a term that Paul uses for those who he's participated with, he's partnered with in the work of the gospel. It's, it's more than a term of affection but it, it's this bonded love and Paul cherished the fact that in Christ they had been made brothers and sisters in the family of God which is how this this verse begins bookending the opening verse with the new relational realities that they share because of their common faith in Christ this also serves as a reminder that there should be no lasting conflict in a family that has a common ancestry of grace. More than that, Paul longs to see them. And it's a rare verb that Paul reserves to depict the deep affection for them. The kind of bond that has formed in adversity, in, in shared experience of, of, of laboring and serving and, and, and living out and planting the gospel in, in, in communities. But it's not a painful memory uh, that is formed from these shared trials. Paul describes them as my joy. As he thinks about the Philippians, he, he describes them as my joy. And just, just as reflecting just reflecting on these stories as, as, as you know, um, Epaphroditus has come up and they're sharing these stories, it kind of it warms the heart of the apostle in a way that his current circumstances can't dampen. Like he's imprisoned, he can't go anywhere. If anything, this time with Epaphroditus is catching up on how the Philippians are going and all that's going on in this church has encouraged Paul greatly, well, for the most part anyway. So much so that Paul says that they are not just his joy, but they are his crown. Just as the winner uh, of a race or an athletic event receives a wreath, it's placed on the victorious athlete's head, so too do the Philippians uh, kind of bear witness to the fact that Paul has not served the gospel in vain. It has borne fruit in the lives of the Philippians. 
From the hardest of beginnings, grace flourishes in the lives of his dear friends and, and, and he kind of pictures it like a, like a, a reef, a crown of, of, of achievement, if you like. I love this picture that Paul keeps painting in this letter of, of true companions, of, of fellow laborers, of people who... Uh, of people who can sit around and share stories uh, of common work and common experience uh, in the gospel. If you're going to regale about anything, if you're going to sit around a campfire and boast about your exploits, then let it be boasting and, and remembering about eternal things, kingdom things, not stuff that just eventually ends up in tips or garage sales or achievements that death separates us from. And this is amongst some of the tenderest language to flow from the Apostle Paul's pen. But it's accompanied by uh, one of the very strongest directives. Not only do they share this common ancestry, this common story of grace in gospel ministry, they also share a present confidence in Christ. They also have this unconquerable joy and their lives are now to bear witness to it. Their lives are to continue to, to, to stand firm in the Lord. It's not just about, oh, I remember the good old days, but about going, yeah, here we are now present in this moment. And this is military language conveying that there can be no compromise of the public witness of their citizenship to the family of God and their faith in Christ. They are not to give an inch in the midst of godless, godless cultures, but rather they are to be reinforced by all the realities that Paul has outlined about who Christ is and what he has done in them and for them. Therefore, based on all that you know to be true, stand firm in the Lord. Not in your own thinking, not in your own customs, not in your own traditions, but in the new reality, the new relationships that are yours in Christ. Stand firm in who unites you. Stand firm in who frees you, in who saves you, in who serves you, in who brings you peace and relationship with God. But a rift, a conflict threatens the fruit, the fruit of grace, and it weakens the testimony or it threatens to weakness the testimony of the community towards the effectiveness of this gospel, this ongoing fruit. So Paul, after kind of backing over the bond that the gospel has forged between them, presses into the issue at hand, kind of putting his finger on, on the nerve ending, if you like. He, he very publicly and, and rather permanently names these two women who are in conflict with each other. I entray Euodia and I entray Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now the conflict that Paul is describing here is not a theological one, it's not a doctrinal one, or Paul would have offered correction. He would have given advice about how to correct uh, false teaching, false doctrine. It seems that what we have is a relational 
conflict. Something has soured in their fellowship. Something has nurtured a bitterness that has gone unreconciled. And now it's, 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 it's eking out. It's becoming publicly known. And these are not people, these women are not people on the peripheral of church. They're not your casual kind of Sunday roll-in, roll-out types. It's not humorous either to caricature the cause of their feud as, as being something trivial as like, you know, fighting choir members as some people like to say. That is patronizing towards the character of these women. Paul describes them as people who have been a model of all that Paul wants for the church. They have labored side by side with Paul for the gospel. There is no doubt about the nature of their faith. Their names, along with Clement and other fellow beloved brothers and sisters, are in the book of life. Stephen Lawson describes them as frontline warriors who had labored side by side for the gospel and now a relational issue has ended or threatens that unity and threatens to produce a rippling conflict in the churches as people kind of take sides, which tends to happen, doesn't it? A feud that fractures fellowship between these women is now widening and threatens to fracture fellowship within the wider church. And these two women, I mean, it's rare to get your name in scripture. And these two women are not named to shame them. They are named because they are actually the best of us. I guarantee you, I, I guarantee you these two women have most of us in this room covered when it comes to following Jesus, if not all of us. And Paul names them because he is confident that they will reconcile and they will, because of the maturity of their faith, hopefully they will be able to bear witness to the goodness of Christ to heal and restore feuding friends. And here we see that even the most dedicated and devoted followers of Jesus can have conflict and can cause conflict. It's why we need to be always doing, following the advice of Paul of standing firm in Christ in our lives. Usually this kind of feud kind of starts small. And then it escalates within a person's spirit. As both the offense and the wound are nurtured rather than addressed, rather than, than confessed, rather than reconciled, they're nurtured, they're, they're held internally. And we do this all the time. We, we play the, the offense or the point of difference or disagreement over and over again in our internal conversations and we make our own commentary on it and we, we, we put forward impact statements about, about it as we go. At least I do. That's how I roll with things. And I've messed up some people in my own kind of internal thinking. The fights that I've had with people in my mind, I'm always right and I'm always the winner. At least by the time I'm finished. And the more this internal self-defending, self-justifying dialogue takes place and not the initiation of reconciliation, the bigger, the bigger it gets. The bigger the divide and the more awkward it is to approach, the harder it becomes to see the other person as you once saw them. And we do it until we get to the point where we say, there is there's nothing in common between us anymore. There is nothing that bonds us or unites us. 
our nurtured bitterness or our shame or our hurt, our focus on sins that have been committed or sins that have been received has obscured our ability to reconcile and to have fellowship with someone that we once ministered with, that we once sat in a chair with and worshipped with, with someone that Christ has made a brother or a sister out of. And we start to invalidate the work of Christ in our lives and in this community. Like, this is the kind of craziness that Paul is trying to stop here. Paul says that this is the opposite of the symptoms and the effects of the Gospels. Christians always have something in common, regardless of the size of the conflict. They have something greater than any cause for conflict. They share Christ. They share his grace. They share his forgiveness. They share his fellowship. So Paul urges these two to agree in these things, to find this common ground in the Lord in the one shared experience that can't be dissolved by conflict, but has the capacity to unite. You know, when we sing that song, I made a note when we were singing that song, Our God Saves. We are not merely singing about how God saves us legally and forensically and how we're saved and and, then in eternity uh, we'll get the reward for that, we'll be in heaven. No, God saves us now and is saving us now it's what we talked about about working out our faith god is saving us in a way that that reverses the effects of the fall and sin in our lives so that we when we have conflict we we have common ground to come together again and fix and solve these things this is what being saved is we are being made new we are being renewed we are being turned into different people than what we once were that is what being saved is And Paul's pushing it across the table. Live into that. And so Paul says, come together under this area of agreement. Move toward each other as Christ has moved towards you. And this is not a call for reconciliation at the expense of truth. Or that they would agree on every little detail. But rather that they would have a gospel posture of doing nothing out of vain conceit. Of regarding others more highly than yourselves. That's that's the doctrine that Paul's talked about earlier. They are to assume the posture described in chapter 2. That they approach each other with with the same mind and the same love and the same affection and comfort and sympathy that they have received and continue to receive and enjoy from God in Jesus. And we see that Paul implores them individually and personally. I entreat you, you odia, And I entreat you, Sintichi, they are not an impersonal issue with undefined responsibilities. But he addresses them as separate people who, regardless of the other, need to begin the the process of making peace. There is no wait and see what the other person will do. There is no wait and, and kind of like, oh, well... I wonder if I step out and I do this, how am I going to look? How's it going to be received? The obligation is actually on both of these women to initiate. And it's no less than how they find themselves serving together. God initiated his saving grace towards them. 
God reconciled them to himself. Now they are to take that, to take that known experience and they are to move toward each other in that. Knowing that God's grace has covered what they currently seem to think is unfixable, unreconcil- unreconcilable. His grace is the environment in which we manage conflict. His grace gives us the security and the confidence to be able to move towards someone we have conflict with. And as they yield their individual lives to the Lord, to agree in the Lord, this common denominator will supply them with the patience, the humility, the wisdom and the compassion to reconcile. To agree in the Lord is to take on the posture of his character, to remember his grace towards them, towards us. This is the narrative to stand firm in, not one of self-pity, of bitterness or even so-called rights. With this attitude adjustment in place, Paul now reminds them that conflict management uh, goes well when godly, objective people are also assisting. Like, like once it's got off the chain, bring in some godly people. So Paul invites in the likes of Clement and other fellow workers and a mysterious person known as True Companion. This is essentially a list of trusted spiritual leaders. This is not just randoms. This is not sticky beaks looking for you know, things to put on a prayer list. Trusted spiritual leaders are being asked to step in and help sort out this conflict. The phrase true companion can actually be translated size of gods. It's actually a person's name. Not one I'd give my kids, but there it is. And like Barnabas means encourager, Sizergos means true companion. It, it, it can actually be a person. True companion by name, true companion by nature. So Paul says, hey, true companion, go do your work. People kind of wonder about who it is, wherever that's his actual name. Or maybe, maybe Paul's referring to Epaphroditus. And he, and he kind of says, hey, true companion, Epaphroditus. Some people believe it's actually Paul's wife, his true companion. Others think it's Luke. But regardless of who it is, so deep is Paul's respect and care for these women. So pivotal is their relational witness to the effectiveness of the gospel that Paul wants to put around them godly, gracious people who will help them manage this conflict. And here we see being part of a church means shared life, means corporate responsibility for how we do life together. As Steve Lawson points out in his commentary, the beloved are not a series of islands or silos disconnected from each other, each person doing their own thing. Instead, they were shouldering a ministry load together, standing side by side in the, in the cause of the gospel loving each other enough to repair relationships rather than just see them ruined, allow them to run their courses. And here we are reminded that it's okay not to be okay, but it is not okay to stay that way. Get some help from qualified and competent people. Maybe it's okay within the confines of a small group. Depends the nature of it. Could be that you call in pastors or qualified pastoral care people. Could be that you get counsellors, psychologists, uh, these kinds of people to help come in and, and give you the tools and the ability to manage the conflict that is in your life. This is what 
Paul is encouraging. This is what he is pushing them to. Well, having put some practical measures in place, Paul now returns to the main theme of his letter, shared joy through participating and partnering in gospel lives. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When conflict shapes our environment, sometimes the last thing that we perhaps want to do is rejoice. But this is not a suggestion by Paul. This is an imperative. Paul is not saying pretend nothing's wrong, sing a few songs and give an appearance of harmony. And this is not about manufacturing a style or, or, or appearance of something. This is about being, being grounded in something, being, having foundation in something. This is about new realities that are far more powerful than the old ones. This is about the presence of Christ in your life to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And rejoicing in in that rather than fueling conflict in your life. This is about remembering that you are actually far worse than you dare admit. Like, yeah, don't be surprised that you've come into conflict with somebody. Everybody wrestles with that sinful nature. But at the same time, you are far more loved than you dare dream. And God moved toward you and reconciled you and brought you into relationship with him. And it's in that that we move yeah we are jacked up but Jesus put jacked up messed up people together and brought them together to work out their faith together to bear witness to his goodness not our craziness like when two conflicting Christians can reconcile and the world goes man how'd they get that done like normally that normally like you Baptists you, you, you go and form two new churches it shouldn't happen bear witness to the goodness of God when we, can, when we can reconcile and come back together. The joy of the Lord that we, that we seek you know, can sometimes be an overwhelming silence. Like it's, when, when Paul says the joy of the Lord, he's not just talking about coming in here and singing a few songs and, and, and appearance. It can sometimes be this overwhelming silence as you were just awed by majesty as we sang. Because we're awed by who God is, what he's done in our lives, and we're just kind of quiet. Other times, it's this confidence, this strange warmth that was within us. When you're grieved by loss, it's funny, I write these things, but then when you preach them, your mind wanders, you know, I just think about the last two weeks and the confidence of the presence of God in the chaos and turmoil of life. And other times you just have to sing and pray and raise your hands or maybe bow your head as you think about things that are worthy of praise, as you think about the work of Jesus in your life. You know, I can imagine the Roman jailer hearing the instruction from Paul, rejoice, you know, rejoice, do it again. And he casts his mind back to, the time, to that night where Paul and Silas turned up in his prison. They're all banged up. They're all beaten up. And he adds to their suffering by, by placing them in stocks, which is, is not the stocks you get at Eureka 
you know, when you go down there, these things mess you up even more. And he puts him in the darkest, most remotest place of the jail. And just as he's about to kind of bite into his um, bacon and cheese and lettuce and ham sandwich that his wife packed for him lovingly with a little smiley face on the lunchbox, he hears singing echoing through his prison. Singing and rejoicing about the relationship and the unconquerable joy that his two prisoners have in Christ and, and his presence with them in this prison. He put them in the deepest, darkest hole, the most miserable place, but singing about how Christ has gone there before them and how Christ is now there with them fills his prison as they rejoice. And he smiles as he remembers that he now shares that same joy with Paul. And he thinks to himself, if Christ can reconcile two natural born enemies, like a jailer and Paul, then he can bring about the harmony between two sisters in Christ. That is not a conflict that Christ can't manage, that is too big for him. Paul is saying when things get messy, when things get conflicted as they have with Euodia and Syntyche, when things are challenging, as he's talked about with the dogs, the mutilators, the flesh, persecution in the church and distorted gospel, when your environments and circumstances get confusing and unstable, take delight, rejoice in the one who never changes, never shifts, never abandons, is always close and unites even the fiercest of foes. Rejoice in the Lord always. And because Christ never changes, and because he is always present, our rejoicing is secure and sure. Like, like the when and the where never changes. It's always. It's no matter where you are. It's no matter what time it is. This stance or posture of rejoicing in the Lord, this standing firm in the realities of Christ, rather than being pulled apart or into conflict by other influences, shapes our uh, external and internal conduct, how we go about life, our thinking and our actions, by taking the chaos and bringing order to our souls. And it begins with actions like Paul says, be, let your conduct be reasonable or be, or be gentle. Have a gentle, reasonable spirit, an attitude and a posture that is the total opposite of being self-seeking and contentious. This is not weakness either. It's not approaching matters with the constitution of a wet dishcloth, as Don Carson kind of put it, but rather it is willed self-effacing, willed self-denying kindness selfless kindness towards people the ability to hear and see others over your self-interest and it's visible and it's lived out like a lived out parable and it acts like stars or lights that shine to give direction to others to bear witness to the presence of Christ in your life to manage conflict do you see how all the doctrine that Paul has been on about is now landing in their lives if you want to be known for anything be known for your gentle forbearance towards others your selflessness to others be known for promoting Christ your attitude should be that of Jesus Christ who didn't grasp 
at his right, to his rights, but went to the cross to reconcile you and I to God. Paul reminds his listeners that the presence of Jesus, of the presence of Jesus, the Lord is near, supplying the logical basis and confidence for our conduct, for our reasonableness, for our gentleness. The nearness of Jesus could refer to his second coming. And so in light of his imminent return, you are incentivized to to be rejoicing, to be gentle. Like how do you want to be found when Jesus returns? Do you want to be in conflict with each other or do you want to be in harmony with each other, bearing witness to the goodness of God? But it's more likely that Paul means that the Lord is near to us spatially, relationally. He is there in the midst of two feuding women. He is there in the midst of the pressure of persecution. He is there and he can be sought. He has promised to be present through his Holy Spirit. He has promised to minister, to comfort, to convict and lead us in truth and wisdom. Which is why Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but be prayerful about all things. This is the sign of selfless dependency over self-determination. To be anxious in this context is to be torn apart, pulled in different directions. Prayer brings the chaos of our lives back and submits them to God. There are no shortcuts to the various conflicts that pull our lives apart, but prayer is a pathway and a provision that brings it all before God, who himself is peace, a peace that Jesus has brought into our lives, a peace that Jesus has reconciled us to, a supernatural assurance that is hard to explain, but wonderful to encounter, wonderful to enjoy, a peace that passes all understanding, as Paul calls it. You know, what's our first port of call to conflict or any form of anxiety that, that threatens to tear apart what Jesus has put together? Is it an autonomous self-dialogue where we are the heroes and we are the victims of the story? Or is it to take time and be still before God, know his presence, and lay out our concerns, supplications, lay out what we lack, what we need to manage the conflicts and the various theatres of life that we find ourselves in? We are so busy sometimes, so self-reliant that to stop for three minutes and take a three-minute quiet time is an anxiety in itself. And then we scurry off into the day and, and become anxious about where God is in our lives. It's crazy. The way to, to uh, not be anxious about anything is to be prayerful about everything. This is how we guard our hearts and our minds in, in, in This is the dialogue that we are to engage in. Finally, I probably don't have time to unpack all of this. I kind of got going and went, oh man, this is a sermon in itself. But Paul supplies a list of virtues, a list of um, uh, externally provided resources, if you like, to participate in so that our lives are renewed and filled with godly content. And here Paul gives us a way to be on the offensive and not reactional when conflict comes. This is like fortifying us already. This is how we are to prepare our minds and souls, filling them with healthy content that is from God and not from this fallen world. 
says that we can be holy people, not prone to conflict, but priests. And here we are inviting in the work of the Spirit. Here we are meditating and, 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 and um, pouring into our lives the instruction of Scripture, the power of the Gospel. This is what we are standing in. Essentially, Paul is saying, you know what? Garbage in, garbage out. But goodness in, goodness out. Christ-likeness in, Christ-likeness out. What fuels our hearts, what we digest, what we think about, what we are influenced by directs our conduct, our relationships, our ability to bear witness to the goodness of Christ in our lives. And the question is, how much time do we spend thinking about things that are pure, things that are good, in our Bibles, in prayer, retelling the gospel to ourselves, the goodness of God to ourselves. Like how much, like if, how much time in a day? Like five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour? And then how much time in a day are we watching Netflix? Um... Any other kind of things that shape our mind? How do you prepare your heart and your mind for conflict? Paul pushes across a table, really, a challenge, really. Paul pushes across a table, a challenge, really, at the end of this, when he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of all peace will be with you. A little challenge in that. Are our lives worthy of being imitated by other Christians? Are we worth following as a pattern of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Like they know what it's like to follow Jesus by what they see in Paul. Are our lives shaped enough by the posture of rejoicing, of our capacity to reconcile, our our gentleness, our prayerfulness, our faithfulness, our confidence in Christ for others to trust us enough? as a true companion, that they would follow us, that they would invite us into their lives to help with the chaos that's going on. That's why we've been all pushed together. That's what we're doing here. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you uh, for what you have done for us in Christ. Again and again, we are pushed back to our dependency and our reliance on him to work in our lives so that we might become the kind of people who can bear witness to your goodness. That as we do life together, as we have these relationships with each other, and as they bear fruit of grace, and and forgiveness and reconciliation as they paint a different picture to the narrative of the world people have got to stop and ask what gives and grace gives so our prayer this morning is that we would be people uh, not born of conflict but born of reconciliation of grace and forgiveness and true companions to each other And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.